thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then, to the, tonight it is our 16th study on the book of Leviticus. And so for those of you who were not with us, a brief outline of the book of Leviticus. This book is addressed to the Israelites in the wilderness. It is a book that is not specifically addressed to the Levites, despite its name. It is addressed to the entire commun- uh, community of Israel, to the whole nation. And it really is structured in three distinct parts. The first one is the sacrifice. What can they sacrifice? What, when can they sacrifice? And how must they sacrifice? God, therefore, from the very get-go, through Moses, speaks to them about the most important thing they can do, which is the liturgy. The most important thing in our life is the liturgy. Everything else in our life follows. Jesus Christ himself told us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Well, that means the liturgy. That's where you find the kingdom of God. And then everything else follows. So, God explicitly tells them what they can sacrifice, how they must sacrifice. And after that, He goes and He explains to the priesthood how that sacrifice will take place from the priesthood standpoint. And then He turns around and talks to the lady and tells them, okay, in order for you to offer me an appropriate sacrifice, this is how you will live. He defines the family. He defines the duties of the uh, lay society. And then give them restrictions that are food-related. We've gone through that last week. Mainly so that this, these restrictions keep the idea of purity omnipresent. What is really important to keep in mind for all of us, is that Scripture is not a book written to tell us comprehensively everything we need to know about every aspect of our life. That's never the intent of Scripture. Scripture is a book written from a divine perspective. Scripture is like a letter written by a father to their, his children. If your father is abroad, if he's away, he's not going to sit down and tell you, when in the morning you get up, brush your teeth. Well, eat first, then brush your teeth. Then make sure that when you dress, button your shirt. He's not going to do that. He leaves it up to you to do those things. But he's going to focus on the essentials, the things that really matter to him. That's what scripture is. 
And then God wrote really three Bibles. The one we're studying, the cosmos, the entire universe, and then the family. We learn about God through our family. We learn about God through the universe. We learn about God through the scriptures. Right? Okay. And then he went through all of this and we've covered all of that. We've covered all of that. And by the way, we're going to get all that up shortly on the site called Corbono.com. Q-O-R-B-O-N-O. That's the name of the website. Corbono.com. And, um, and then, he, as we get closer to the end of the book, God then reverts back to something important for him. He basically told them about their duties. He told them what they must do and what they must not do. And now, he tells them about rejoicing. Because this is the other important element that you cannot forget when you read these books. When you read the book of Leviticus, it's like a tar pit. You start reading it and you hit a snag. You stop because it is complex. It's talking about foreign things. It's complicated. Some parts of it are R-rated. It's a strange book. So therefore, you might be taken so much by these technicalities that you can forget. You can forget the river of love that subtends, that supports the entire book. Sort of like you receive a letter from your father and he's using, let's say, he decided to write it in Shakespearean style. You can be so taken by the language itself that you forget everything about your father. Right? Well, Scripture is not Shakespearean style. It's even more strange. It's stranger to our ease, especially these books, than Shakespeare could be. Because it's remote, it's a different culture, it's a different time. It's 5,000 years ago. It's uh, different preoccupations. We've lost all of this. We don't understand it. Be like, I've given this example numerous times, a, um, an extraterrestrial anthropologist who land on Earth into the Library of Congress and has only three minutes, and he picks the first book he can grab and he leaves. Goes back home, manages to translate the book, and goes in front of his colleagues to tell them about the life on earth. And begins by telling them that on earth there are rabbits who are late, and there are girls who fall into holes, and the whole planet is ruled by um, a tyrant called the Queen of Hearts, and there are weird cats, powerful animals. So he understands, he just grabbed, you guessed it, right? Alice in Wonderland, and he interpreted literally to be a factual scientific representation of life on earth. But obviously, he completely missed the point. He misses the irony, he misses the symbolism, he misses the background, the cultural background that supports all of that text. Well, oftentimes, we are that extraterrestrial when we're dealing with scripture. It sounds so strange to our ears. So we have to be very careful not to fall into a too tight of a literal explanation or go into pure symbolism. Right? It's something that we always have to, be, to manage carefully. So, now that he's done all that, back to what I was saying, he then tells them about the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the rest, the Sabbath rest, which we've covered last week, is unique among ancient civilizations. There is no notion of an obligatory Sabbath rest that would cost you your life. 
in some cases if you violated it. Imagine that. Kids, today you have no school. If I see you studying, you're dead. How does that sound to your ears? But that's what we're talking about. It's an obligatory rest. Now, why would you, why would you, why would you force kids to rest? Why would you do that? What would lead you to take on such a weird concept? As you recall, last week we read it. In certain cases, if you work on a Sabbath, you can be either cut off, from, meaning excommunicated, excommunio, outside of the community, you're out, or, or you are dead. So, translated to our times, why would you... Imagine that. Imagine that. Kids, next Sunday, or you're not studying. If I see you studying, you're dead. Or, you're out of my house. How does that sound to your ears? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that if you told kids or grown-ups, this is a day of rest, please rest, people would rest? Why would they not rest? Why would you be studying on Sunday? Why would you be working on Sunday? What would lead you to do that? Well, you can stand your family. That's one answer. Yes. You haven't finished your work. That's another reason. Get a head start. Greed. Very good. So, yes, lack of faith that God would provide. That is the key factor. You see... God can say, you don't work on Sunday or on Saturday, right? And I will grudgingly approve, agree, not to work on Saturday, right? I could do that. But then, what would I be missing here? What is the missing part in this deal, the way I'm doing this? What am I missing here? Yes, exactly, that God is a loving Father, that He really cares about me, and that what He's going to, when He tells me to do that, it is really for my best interest. And therefore, this leads us to the other side of this equation, which is how we live our faith. So you've heard the expression, cafeteria Catholics. Those are Catholics who go to the church and say, okay, um, belief in the Trinity, yes. Uh, Mary, yes, I'll take that. That's good. Uh, saying the rosary, I'll say the rosary. It's fine. Um, abortion, we don't allow abortion. Yeah, I'll take that. We don't allow abortion. Okay. Uh, we don't allow contraception. No, I'm not going to take that. In my case, contraception is good. This is a cafeteria Catholic. Somebody who picks and chooses what they want to believe, right? So essentially, in some areas of their life, they're Pope. They've spoken infallibly that in this case, this, the church is wrong and I'm right. Right? Okay. Then you have car wash Catholics, which is a good, sizable portion of the church. A car wash Catholic is like somebody who goes to a car wash. When you get to the car wash, what do you do? You put your car on neutral, and you sit, and you go through the motion. Right? Your car is clean from the outside. And then you can now go and drive. So, car wash Catholics, likewise, go to the church on Sunday, put themselves on neutral, and go through the motions. They stand, they sit, they kneel, they did this, and then the other. 
they receive communion, and then go home. And as soon as they step outside of the church, they go back to their pagan world. Car wash Catholics. Car wash Israelite. Israelite. Well, maybe not. Maybe camel wash Israelite. I don't know. I have to come up with a different... Okay, you get my... Get my if, it, if the faith is not lived inside as a relationship between you and God, right? There's no faith. You can go to church every Sunday. You can say rosaries. You can do the prayers and this and that and the other. But if inside of you, you're not in conversation with God, there's no faith. There's the appearance of faith. There's the movements, the gestures, like an automaton. But there's no faith. Hence, that is the part where it becomes very important. Where? You have an exam next week. Sunday. You can become your own pope. Right? I have an exam. I have to work. So, let me tell you exactly what you just said, if you were to say such a thing. I have an exam. I have to work. God be damned. That's what you just said. Car wash Catholic. Justify yourself when you need it for your own sake. Now, the difficulty for all of us is that it's a gray area. It's tricky. Scripture doesn't say it. The church doesn't say it. Your conscience must say it. Right? So therefore, car wash Catholics say, I'm following my, the dictate of my conscience. My conscience tells me to study. I'm studying. I'm not doing anything wrong. Wrong. Your conscience must be formed according to the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, you must have a relationship with God. Therefore, at that moment, when you decided to study, if you did not go on your knees to ask God to inspire you and help you, if you've not been praying, if prayer is not part of your daily life, you're not forming your conscience. Let's not kid ourselves. You're not forming your conscience to the truth. And as soon as, soon as you don't form your conscience to the truth, you become your own self-proclaimed Pope. Do you understand? Okay. God told them to rest. He knew what they needed. Above all, they needed to trust Him. And the trust must be interiorized. Even when things are tough, even when you're scared, even when you're borderline panicking, you have to trust God. It's hard. It's tough. It's difficult. It requires prayer. So he knew that. That's why he started with the liturgy. And he ends with what we're going to cover now, the festivals. So, in Leviticus 23.4, God instructs the people to keep the feast at their appointed time. Therefore, the people had to preserve their spiritual heritage and pass it on. Time is holy. Part of the entire liturgical year is to help the people preserve their heritage, what they have received, and be able, therefore, to pass it on to the next generation as part of a cultural heritage. Because faith does not live in a vacuum. Faith must permeate culture. And when it doesn't, it becomes very difficult for faith to be passed on. God knew that, so He structured a whole series of feasts to cover the entire year to help the people preserve their heritage. Passover. Passover came in the spring, the month of Nisan. 
which is between March and April, at the time of the barley harvest. Watch how God now structures the feasts to match economic um, cycles. He does it this way for two reasons. To constantly remind people that He is the one whom they should worship, not the economy. And to remind them that He is the source of all their wealth. By the way, it isn't something extraordinary. I mean, in a sense that, so strange, we all do it. All parents do that, right? You want dessert? Eat your meat. Why is it that we tie dessert to the food that we want the kids to eat? Right? We do it because we know this is what they want, but we want to give them what they need. So God does the same thing. And obviously to preserve them from paganism, because other um, cultures would then celebrate these uh, economic moments, or uh, if you will, pastoral moments, through uh, pagan worship. Passover then was immediately followed by the seven days feast of unleavened bread, and then the beginning of the feast of first fruits in the same week. So three feasts were celebrated at the beginning of the year. Passover, reminding the Israelites that they were freed from slavery and brought into safety by God, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would eat unleavened bread to remember, to recall what happened, how they lived before. And then, unleavened bread, which has therefore this tinge to it, this Sorrowful tinge, because you're eating something you don't necessarily enjoy. You understand, they didn't eat unleavened bread during this feast because they preferred unleavened bread to leavened bread. It's the other way around. It's like a little bit of a fasting, if you will, before the Feast of First Fruits, which celebrated what? The first fruits. Barley, barley is the first fruit. It comes way before wheat. In fact, 50 days before. Because then the next feast over is the feast that has been now known as Pentecost, which is called the Feast of Weeks, or Shabuoth, right at the time of the early summer wheat harvest. So we start with barley, which is the first fruit. It's an early fruit, and we move over to wheat 50 days later. Okay, Those are four feasts so far. And then there'll be three more at the close of the year. We'll get to those a little later. Now, Passover and unleavened bread are covered in chapter 23, verse 4 through 8. Passover marked the beginning of Israel's national feasts, commemorating the deliverance from bondage. And the feast of unleavened bread that followed marked the first harvest of the year in the spring. Notice that there is a big difference between these feasts and the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day could be celebrated anywhere in the land of Israel, when they entered Israel. It could be celebrated anywhere in the land of Israel. These feasts could only be celebrated in Jerusalem. You had to make the track to go to Jerusalem and celebrate there. Yes, Samaritans are no longer Jew. Yes, 
so indeed, there are spl- splintering that happens continuously throughout history, and it didn't start with the Catholic Church. It was, it in fact started early on with the son of Solomon, right after, uh, right after the death of uh, Solomon. So, seven days, notice, right, the week, the seven, number seven, as you know, is the number of the covenant, right? To make a covenant is literally to mean to seven oneself. That's why seven is such an important number. It's just a reminder of the covenant. And again, let's recall the covenant. A covenant is between a strong party and a weak party. The strong party establishes the terms of the covenant, Say conqueror comes and conquers a city, Alexander the Great. He establishes a covenant with the conquered city. He's the strong party and the weak party. He tells them the conditions. If this city follows those conditions after a period of trial, they may then be considered as citizens of his empire. This would be considered the blessing of, of being obedient to that covenant. If they do not follow the uh, prescriptions of the covenant, then they'd be utterly destroyed. And the remnants would be taken and into slavery. That would be the curse of the covenant. Well, likewise, God established covenants with His people. And the covenants had two parts. Exactly the same structure. They had, first, the introduction of the strong party, who He is. Then, the terms of the covenant. This is what I want you to do. Then comes the blessings, and then comes the curses. And by the way, It'd be good for you to uh, read Leviticus 26. It's not just blessing. It is the mind-numbing, bone-crunching chapter of Scripture. I want you to read this chapter several times before next lecture. Leviticus 26. Read it slowly. Read it slowly. And then by the time you're done with this chapter, I want you to sit back and ask yourself the simple question. Do I know God? When you read that chapter, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I know God? Or how well do I know God? How would you... Does that chapter... Can you use this chapter to reconcile your idea of God with what you read? And if, the, if it's not reconciling, ask yourself the next question. Who's wrong? Right? If you read the chapter and you go, yep, makes sense. I'm good. Then great. If you read this chapter and you go, whoa, it doesn't mean it makes sense to me. Or I'm not, I do, I, then ask yourself this question. Who's wrong? So, that's why it's seven days. Now, these gatherings, when they would come together, were a constant reminder that their lives were ruled by the covenant and that the land was the Lord's. The land belonged to the Lord. Translate always. Anytime you hear me say the land, let's not have any romantic ideas about the land. Right? The land means primarily in this context, the economy. The source of livelihood. The source of stability. The the place where you can raise a family. Right? All these things are tied to an economical system at the end of the day. That's what the land represents. Let's not then 
layer on top of that our own romantic idea of the land today because we are mostly urban dwellers who crave nature. That's nice, but that's not what is mostly implied here. It's the livelihood. Because in the book of Revelation, what was attacked at one point was not the land, but the fish in the sea. Where St. John tells us a third of the fish died. And what he meant by that was that the most of the maritime economies were stricken. Translation, the market crashed. That's what it meant. All right. So these feasts centered and oriented the Israelite culture around and towards God. The holy calendar fostered the virtue of piety. The calendar, the holy calendar fostered the virtue of piety. So today, what do we have left? Well, let's see. Uh, Christmas is a big fat guy with a beard who's always jolly. And Easter is a rabbit. Hmm? So we have a duty before us to re-Christianize the culture. That means to imbue the culture with events that point us towards God. And the worst thing we can, we can do is be defeatist. Think, well, it cannot happen. No, it can't happen. People are hungry for the truth. Never forget that. People want the truth. They want to know the truth and live by it. Now, we have now a situation where these events require, to a certain degree, a heroic effort. This university is a prime example, John Paul II. That's the whole purpose of this university, to rebuild a culture that is oriented towards God and do it through the media. Now, promises of things to come, first fruits, beautiful feast. During the seven days that the Israelites ate unleavened bread, when they were not allowed to eat leavened bread, roasted grain or garden fruit, a sheaf of first grain harvested was brought to the Lord. So it was almost like a fast. It wasn't very pleasant. But it's still called a feast because they're celebrating freedom from bondage. Right? So notice, in God's mind, there's a disassociation that happens between eating and feasting. The two are not necessarily connected, not always. It's still called a feast, even though you're fasting. So the equivalence for us is two periods in the year. Lent is one period, and the other is, who said Advent? Good. Good, Mary. Advent. Advent is not a period to stuff ourselves. It's to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Right? So it's a period of fasting. That's how we celebrate Advent. We are waiting for the joy of the birth of Jesus Christ. By the way, on Corbono, uh, there is a quiz. Currently, there are 225 questions. So every time you run that quiz, you get 10 out of the 225. And by the end of June, there will be 500. 
So I encourage you to go to the site. You can do it anonymously. And then take those quiz. Quizzes. Right? Encourage your friends to do the same. Because it will give you a little bit of an inkling of how much you know about Scripture. Okay. Now, here's the beautiful thing about this feast. They bring to the Lord a sheaf of first grain harvested. This is the barley grain. It's the first fruit. The whole season isn't yet ready, but they're celebrating it. They haven't yet fully harvested everything. They haven't really begun to harvest. They're celebrating the harvest before it happens. Now this is very profound. It is very profound because it teaches us something about the way God expects us to pray. See, instead of looking back to the deliverance from bondage, they looked forward in confidence and with gratitude to a full harvest to follow. You see, most of us, most of us, pray for what we want, right? And when it happens, we thank the Lord, right? But fundamentally, if you really think about it, there is an angle to this that is fostering doubt in us, not faith. Right? Jesus Christ, when He raised Lazarus, when He raised Lazarus, said, I thank you, Lord God. He thanked His Father before He raised Lazarus. We should always start with thanking God for hearing our prayer. Because that, that confirms us into our faith that He is a loving Father. He heard our prayer. He's in conversation with us. And if the answer that He's giving us is not the one we may expect, then we can ask that He may help us to understand it. Right? So that's what that feast did to the Israelites. It taught them to hope in God, to trust in Him, to believe in Him before they saw the goods. Before they saw the goods. Right? Another way we say prayer of thanksgiving is in imitation of Our Lady. When Gabriel, when the Archangel Gabriel, St. Gabriel told her what was going to happen, Mary did not completely comprehend what was going to happen. In fact, even today she doesn't completely comprehend what happened. Because it was a divine act. But back then, as a young girl of 16, thereabout, she certainly did not understand everything St. Gabriel told her. The how this is going to happen. She understood the end result. And she said, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. In fact, I am the slave of the Lord would be even more appropriate translation. Let it be done to me according to your word. Now when she said that, I want you all to understand one thing about that. We might say something similar. So most of us, if we read a story of a saint, life of a saint, we see how much they suffer. The thought comes to mind, well, okay, Lord, if you want me to suffer, okay, if, if it's your will, I, I suppose I'll do it. And we're kind of, you know, frumpy face and... Right? Right? Yeah. Mary didn't do that. When she said this... 
it was completely in the spirit of gratitude and joy. That is giving, that, that is being thankful to God. So, nothing pleases God more than when you go to Him, when you have difficulties, and you thank Him first for the difficulties. You thank Him for the difficulties. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for those difficulties. Thank you for allowing me to share a little bit in your suffering. Thank you for what you have given me. Thank you. And then once you've done that, let the screaming begin. Just kidding. I mean, then you can ask for what you think you might need, right? That's key. This is what that feast is all about. First fruit requires that we trust in God by giving Him the first fruit of our labor. This idea is closely connected with tithing. Thanksgiving must be primarily for good things to come and then for past things received. For good things to come. Do you believe today, right here, right now, do you believe that God has good things for you? You don't see Him. You don't touch them. You don't feel them. You might even know how it can possibly happen. But do you believe on account of His death on the cross that He has good things for you? If you do, you thank Him. So when you start your day, you got up, didn't you? Thank you, Lord Jesus. I was able to get up this morning. Some people in Oklahoma... Right? Yeah? Thanksgiving. The spirit of gratitude is so important. Right? Joy. Other nations try to manipulate their gods by their magical rituals. Right? Magic's purpose is to manipulate a god to make him do what you want. You are in control. Thanksgiving and gratitude on the, is the exact opposite pole. Saying, okay, thank you. I, I don't deserve what you're sending my way, but I thank you for it. Right? There's no manipulation here. Very different spirit. In the New Testament, first fruit points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is, according to 1 Corinthians 15.20, 1 Corinthians 15.20, Jesus Christ is the, described as the first fruit from the dead. That description was not made poetically. That's a liturgical description pointing straight back to the feast of first fruit. Right? The first fruit from the dead. Meaning what? Meaning, just as the priest waved that sheaf as the first fruit, we wave the cross as the first fruit of our resurrection. What has been accomplished in Christ shall be accomplished in us. That's the feast that we celebrate. St. Paul encouraged generosity in giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and instructed those who could give to set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income so that it could be collected and dispersed among those in need. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Many of us can be in situations where giving is hard. It's tough. It hurts. I don't necessarily mean monetarily giving. Sometimes it's not that at all. Sometimes it is giving of your time. Sometimes, for those of you who might be considered geeks or nerds, your neighbor needs a computer fixing. 
I don't necessarily mean money. I mean giving in all forms or shapes, right? I have a friend who um, told me that uh, he wanted to go and uh, watch a movie. And right I was parking, this guy comes over and asks for money. And like most of us guys, especially those who are married, if you have cash, it ends up in your wife's. Um, you don't carry cash, you carry plastic. So he had no money. So the guy told him, yeah, I know, you don't have any money, you have plastic. And something clicked in him. And, he sa- and the guy said, I'm hungry. So my friend says, okay, how about I buy you something to eat? So he got up, went and bought that homeless guy food. And they had to wait 20 minutes for the food to be ready. And in those 20 minutes, he's, they're sitting and talking to this guy who had been homeless for a while. He's an older guy. And then what does he do? He pulls out a Bible, the older guy. And he says, this is what he's reading every day. And he says this to my friend. I'm grateful for every day God gives me. He's homeless. And then it was an occasion for my friend then to talk to him about Mary. And he told me he felt as if he was meant to be there because Mary had picked that, that she wanted him in heaven. And he needed to talk to him about her. And that was it. That was giving in the hope of something to come, right? That's what we have to do. Always remember, good things are coming. Don't be afraid of giving. Hmm? Always remember that. Good things are coming. Don't be afraid of giving. All right. Acknowledging what God has provided, the Feast of Weeks. So now, after the first fruits, 50 days later, is the time of the harvest. We now acknowledge what God has given. It is the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and you go and harvest and collect. Now here's what happens. The completion of the grain harvest was marked by the festival 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot. And that's detailed in Exodus 34.22. It was given the name Pentecost in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the scripture, because of the 50 days. Right? Pentagon, Pentecost, Penta, five. Okay? The first barley sheaf was brought to the sanctuary just after Passover, first fruit. 49 days later, the last cereal crop, wheat, ripened. The Israelites brought loaves of bread made from wheat, thereby celebrating what the Lord had produced for them. And the Feast of Weeks commemorated also the giving of the law that took place after the Passover from Egypt. So we go from thanking the Lord in expectation of the good things to come, to thanking the Lord for all the good things He has given us in that order. So, if you were to build that personally, if you were to build a prayer time around that cycle, you would start with Passover. What is Passover? Passover is a remembrance of remembrance of the time when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, it is a good moment to remember our own sins and failings. Right? You start with that. Unleavened bread is essentially a fasting in thinking about the, um, uh, the time where Israelites did not have much to eat, right? So that would be a good occasion to, after you've done an examination of conscience, essentially, about your sins, to take resolution of how you're going to work against your sinful tendencies. 
right? Then you have this idea of thanksgiving, right? You thank the Lord for all the good things He is about to give you. Watch what He's going to give you. And after you've done that, you thank the Lord for all the good things He has already given you. So not only is the liturgical cycle applicable to the whole nation, it is also applicable internally to each one of us. It's a great way of following the cycle. You could also start, if you will, by thanking the Lord. That works as well. You can start by the thanksgiving cycle and then move into examination of conscience. That works just as well. The important thing, those elements need to be there. So it's a good guide to follow. If the first fruits typify the rising from the dead of Christ, the Feast of Weeks typifies the church. And the fruits it produces in abundance. And that's very important. Why? Because first fruit is about the groom. Pentecost is about the bride. So fundamentally, the whole idea between these two feasts is a wedding. Hmm? And hence, behind it all is the idea of a family. So it is important, as part of your prayers, to also not to forget to thank the Lord for the church. Yeah? Not to forget to thank the Lord for the church and to pray for the church. That means your community, that means the people you know, but that means also the hierarchy, the Pope, the bishops, the priests, the deacons, the consecrated people who are um, living in monasteries, the nuns, the, the monks, and the entire community of the church, not forgetting people in purgatory, especially those whom there is no one to pray. Right? Especially those whom there is no one to pray. That means genuine gratitude is what is intended here and it is genuine gratitude that curbs greed. It is genuine gratitude that stays greed, that curbs it in all its forms. That's the spirit that we have to develop inside of us to be truly and grateful for every moment we receive. And you know what? That takes work. That is is not easy, that doesn't come naturally to us. It is never an easy thing to do. But that is the best way to worship God, is by saying thank you. And getting to the point where you mean it. Start by small things. Start by thanking the Lord for small things and mean it. Find something in your day, one thing. There must be one thing you could thank the Lord for. All right, let's take a test. Starting from this side, moving over. What would you thank the Lord for today? One thing. For being here. Okay. I want to hear it. Come on. Alive. Yes. Gift of our faith. Absolutely. For a beautiful weather. For a restful night. Absolutely. Yes. Passing emergency inspections. Excellent. Yes. To have something to eat today. Yeah. We can all think about at least one thing to thank the Lord for. That we mean it. You know what? The problem is that we're, we're carrying 
right? We're carrying a whole contraption over our head, all our dreams and hopes and the things we want to do and our frustrations and the regrets and all that other things we're carrying over our head. So sometimes all that comes down on us and we don't feel like thanking anybody, right? Because somebody owes us something, right? So it's hard. That's why it takes an exercise, an exercise in faith to find at least one thing that we genuinely are happy about that day. One. Start right there. And let that spirit of genuine, genuine thanksgiving grow in you. And that will stay away greed. It will help with any anxiety you have, with any anger. It has beautiful fruits. Okay. Then we move to the great ingathering, the instruction for the Feast of Trumpets, which is in the chapter 23, verse 23 to 25. So that's the next calendar over. So we went from Passover to unleavened bread to first fruit to uh, Pentecost. Those are the first four. The fifth is trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. This one happened in the fall, in the seventh month, called Tishri. We say Tishrin, but it's Tishri. Which marked the end of the harvests for the season and the beginning of the new year and the civil calendar. In the pagan world, it was often a time of corrupt practices and superstitious rituals. Well, not unlike the celebration of New Year's in the Western world. Okay? So, the trumpets sounded from morning until evening, calling people to the great feast for purification from sin and joyful fulfillment of God's promise at the close of the year. Right? So again, it is a feast of renewal and thanksgiving for the year that has gone by. Why did they blow the trumpets? Because God told them in the book of Exodus that the, they will blow the trumpets as a sign of remembrance of the covenant for him. That is, when they blow the trumpets, he shall remember the covenant he made with them. Trumpets, therefore, become associated with um, examination of conscience because they're also associated with judgment. So, for instance, Isaiah, at one point in his prayers, prevented rain from falling for three years. And Scripture says he turned the, 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 the... he, the, the sky became as brass. Why did they use the word brass? Because brass is associated with trumpets. It's God's judgment. And those trumpets are important in the book of Revelation. The third sign given are the trumpets, the blowing of the trumpets. Right? So it is a time that also, eschatologically, from the point of view of the end, eschatos, the end, Points us to what? Makes us think of what? First, our own end. Our death. So it's a feast that allows us to think about our own death. Okay? Now here I can speak infallibly. Well, almost infallibly, I suppose. We're all going to die. Unless God decides that the end of the world is tomorrow. No, if the end of the world were tomorrow, those who are alive stay alive. They don't die. Okay, now, my point is, we don't know when we're going to die, right? Therefore, 
we must understand that in our entire life is a preparation for death. For, you know, Catholicism, in a sense, is one of those, if, if perhaps the only religion where we can speak of a happy death. He died a happy death. But to other people, it's a complete oxymoron. Happy death. It just doesn't work together. But it does. Because if you prepared your life to die, right, then yeah, it is a happy moment. Right? So again, it is not somber. It is not, um, you know, um, depressing. It is taking an honest stock of where you are, where you stand, vis-a-vis God, and then thanking Him for the fact that you're standing before Him right now. So, again, the trumpets represent the voice of God calling His people, Numbers 10. The trumpets are also a way for the people to remind God of the covenant in the book of Exodus. Therefore, the covenant was renewed every year when Israel came before the Lord and reaffirmed its faith in the goodness and providence of God. Yes. Oh, of course. Very good question. Why would God need to be reminded? God doesn't need to be reminded. Right? But when He says that every time you blow the covenant, I shall remember the covenant, the covenant, it is His promise of faithfulness. It's not about Him remembering as, Oh yeah, I forgot. Thank you for reminding me of this. I was about to zap the world. No. It, is, it means every time you blow that trumpet... Know that I will be faithful to this covenant. It's for us more than it is for Him. Jesus did the same thing in instituting the Eucharist. Right? Do this in remembrance of Me. What did He tell them that? Were we going to forget? No. The word used is actually anamnesis in in the Greek, which is an amnesia. It's almost like making present when somebody's completely forgotten and suddenly his memory comes back and boom, he's in that moment. Well, that's the word he used. Right? Make me present. That's what he meant. Not just, oh yeah, I remember. Oh yeah, I, I was here. Mass, I forgot what I was here for. But, but now I, I kind of remember why I'm here. No, not, not like that. All right? Okay. Yes. It was the end of the year for them. It, the, the, I'm sorry, it's the end of the civil calendar. Just as New Year's is the end of the civil calendar, not the end of the liturgical calendar. Mm-hmm. Right? Our liturgical calendar doesn't end on, in December. Right? Our liturgical calendar uh, ends uh, in November. Yeah, end of October, beginning of November is the beginning of the new year. Back exactly where Tishri is. The month of Tishreen. We say Tishreen in Arabic, I'm sorry. But uh, there's Tishreen, Awal Tishreen Itteni. First and second Tishri is what we use, right? Right around that time, we have the, 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 the renewal of the liturgical year, right? And in the Eastern liturgies where the calendar is still more explicit, you know you're getting into the new year because we go through the renewal of the church, the renewal of the congregation, and then we know we started a new liturgical year for those who are paying attention. And the Latin rite has been a little bit kind of hidden these days. It's not as easily seen, but that's what happens. So it's not the, thank you for the question, it is not the end of the liturgical year, it is the end of the civil year. Okay? All right. Next is the high point. Right? The high point. The removal, removal of all iniquity, the day of atonement. Yom Kippur. Al-Yawm al-Kabir. The high day. That's the 
holiest feast for Israel, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day where the high priest is allowed to enter the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holy, and um, put, bring, bring the blood with him and put it on the four corners of the altar and then whisper softly the name of God. And so solemn was this feast that he had to, the, the high priest has to bathe seven times, had to fast seven days, and they would tie a rope to his leg. That if he were to be, to, to, to die inside the Holy of Holies, that they have a way to pull his body back out. Okay? Yes. How does the Day of Atonement translate to Catholic celebration? It doesn't. That's one feast. Well, yes, it does. Yes and no. You might think of it as Easter. God raised, you know, Jesus raising from the dead. But fundamentally, the notion of a day of atonement, Jesus made away with because every day becomes a day of atonement. You and I can go to confession, and what happens in the confession is by far stronger than what happened in the day of atonement. Because the day of atonement were for all the sins that were committed unwittingly, all the sins that people committed unwittingly, not for sins that they committed on purpose, knowingly. Those could not be forgiven. You understand? No, can you repeat that? I'm going to repeat that. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the whole Levitical priesthood did not have the power to forgive sins committed um, willingly. They, it was only there to provide forgiveness for sins committed unwillingly or by ignorance. That's all. Including the Day of Atonement. Confession is way more powerful. Right? Some people are very, um, how shall I put it, um, fascinated by, by um, exorcism. And somehow they tend to forget that an exorcism is a sacramental. It's not a sacrament. Exorcism is far weaker than confession. The great miracle happens in confessionals. This is what happens there when the priest says, and I absolve you, not forgive you, absolve you. He can forgive you all he wants. It doesn't mean your sins are gone. But if he absolves you, that is the power of Jesus Christ. He removed those sins from your sin. That means he reopened the gates of heaven for you. This is huge. Confession is an incredible miracle that happens every time you go there. Oh, yeah, it doesn't say it word for word, but we know from the whole study of the book of Leviticus that the, the sacrifices that it had to offer, when you reread chapter 1 through 7, are only offered for those things they have done unwittingly or by ignorance. Not for things done wittingly. For these, there were punishments. And there was no way around it. Do you, do you follow me? So let's say somebody steal from someone on purpose. He couldn't offer sacrifice to save his life. He would be punished. Okay? And I don't just mean in terms of uh, the civil society. I mean spiritually also punished. There is no way out. In the confessional, it's the exact opposite. Hitler could have gone to confession and he could have made it to heaven. Talk about power. 
I'm, I'm not going to go into what he did, didn't do. All I'm saying is that he could have done it. Even him. Even him. Right? Even him could have made it into heaven. By having a priest say, I absolve you. Isn't that amazing? That is incredible. It's the same power, actually, that derives... It's the same power as when Jesus spoke to Dismas, the, the thief on the cross. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. Okay? Well, that's the power He gave His apostles. That power He gave to them. Whatever sin, whatever sin, not whatever unwitting or ignorant sin, whatever sin you forgive, they shall be forgiven. Whatever sin you retain... They shall be retained. Yeah, that's the difference. Yes, absolutely, yes. In fact, uh, you're right. The best possible healing is confession. And if you could bring somebody to confession, you wouldn't have to go through the whole uh, exorcism thing. You do it because they can't get there. That's all. It's a hard, difficult uh, work for a priest to do. Sometimes if somebody has been possessed, let's say, for nine years, it's going to take nine years of exorcism before he's freed. Sometimes it's very long. You can go to confession, one confession, but he can't. All right, so the Day of Atonement. Um, so, back to the question you asked me, actually, what we think of it, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is really the day of renewal of the congregation. It's the beginning of the liturgical year. In the Maronite rite, we have exactly that. We have a feast called the Day of Renewal of the Congregation, where the congregation is essentially renewed. Now, most people have no idea what's going on, but that's a different story. But, essentially, that's what's going on in that day. So that, that, that's how this feast has been translated into the Catholic Church. All right. And then we have the celebration of ingathering. At ingathering, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. 23, verse 33 to 44. The Feast of Sukkoth, or Tabernacles, began on Tishri 15, five days after the Day of Atonement. Tishri 15 began the week-long celebration. In later tradition, the people took the palm frond, put the myrtle on one side and the willow on the other, and bound them together with a golden thread. This bundle of festal plume was called lulav, which was carried in festive procession from the Gihon Spring to the temple, along with water for ritual pouring. This is the only festival where the people were commanded to rejoice. And that's what they did when Jesus walked into Jerusalem. They brought the palm branches. right? Okay. It was also referred as asip in gathering of the summer crops and fruits at the end of the agricultural, agricultural year in Exodus 34:22 everybody brought a gift of their crops and vintage in thanksgiving to the lord by doing this they expressed their faith in sufficient rainfall for the next year again the gratitude for what is to come expressing their faith for what is to come During the time of Christ, two additional features were added to this feast. Water libation and lamp lighting and rejoicing with music. And the Lord patterned two of His discourse on this feast. The discourse on the rivers of living waters in John 7 and the discourse on the light of the world in John 8. 
in both cases he was at the feast and he, as they were bringing water, he said, I am, you know, come to me, those who are thirsty, and I will give you rivers of living water, right? And then I am the light of the world. He patterned it on the feast. In fact, you will see when we get to eventually the Gospel of St. John, a lot of the things that happen in the Gospel of St. John line up either with the Sabbath or the feast. It is very liturgical across the board. Right? The, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle commemorated the passage from the wilderness into the promised land. The Israelites lived in booths for seven days and then celebrated when they came out of them, knowing they did not have to live in them anymore. Again, the same idea. There's a little bit of a fasting, so to speak, to live in those things. And then when you come out re- realizing you have a land, you have a place to live, you're not a homeless. It'd be similar to if, let's say, we all decided to go live as homeless for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, we go back to our home. Yes. No, no. Camping is enjoyable. Being homeless is not. Right? Yeah. Because we don't camp the way they camped, right? We have TVs in our tents. It's not exactly the idea they had back then. Right? Okay. This was the foundation of their faith in the Lord, the deliverance from bondage. And Rashban, who was a great commentator, Jewish commentator, said that the Lord set the feast of booths at harvest time when the houses are full of good things so that the people could not say in pride that they have done all this. So you can almost think of uh, the feast of of, um, booths as similar to Christmas because um, when you go through... um, um, when you, when you start, um, in order to get to the Feast of, of Christmas, you have to fast. Right? In thinking about, okay, all the good things that are coming your way are not your doing. It is God's. So likewise, for them, it was similar in principle to that same behavior, same idea. And so therefore, the Catholic equivalent would be, therefore, Advent and Christmas. right? Where we refrain from the good things of this world to prepare for the coming of Christ and the celebration of Christmas. So therefore, the entire liturgical cycle of Israel was one of remembrance, renewal, thanksgiving for the things to come, and thanksgiving for the things given. Let me repeat that. The entire liturgical cycle of Israel was one of remembrance, renewal, thanksgiving for the things to come, and thanksgiving for the things given. And that's how a well-ordered society ought to function. Today, we live in a society that has moved away from the liturgical cycle, that doesn't even consider the liturgical cycle as even significant in many ways, other than a couple of feasts, Christmas and Easter, and even those are being now more and more commercialized. And it is a society, therefore, that can only think of, the, of its future in apocalyptic terms. It sees no way out, and what is in front of it is despair. This is a very... Clear, if you watch some of the movies they're coming out with, if you see the psyche, the, the, the anxiety, the sense of loneliness, all of that, all of these stem from the fact that we're moving away from the liturgy, which is the source and fount of our faith in our life, and it's the summit of our faith. Hence, our, in, our own lives must be week-to-week liturgical, and throughout the whole year, liturgical. So right now, we are closing, right, the season of Pentecost. Actually, we just closed it. And then so in the season of Pentecost, it would have been a good time to have a real, to strengthen our devotion to the Holy Spirit, right? 
Now, in the Maronite calendar, we're now entering into what we call the season of the Holy Cross, which will culminate on September 14 with the feast of the of the, uh, the exaltation of the Holy Cross. And so, this is a time to think, to uh, to meditate not just on the cross itself, the glorification of the cross. Therefore, eschatologically, the end, right which has been signified by the cross of Christ. So I encourage you to be more aware of the liturgical cycle you're in. I encourage you to start to think about what might you do to bring back some of that liturgical life into your own family, into your own families, and help people rediscover this truth that alone gives life. God bless you. Let's start. You know, uh, that's a very good question. So are there days where you should not be fasting from meat? And uh, so there is a difference between abstaining, which is what you're asking, and fasting, right? So let's clarify that. Abstaining from meat is you don't eat meat, but you can eat three meals a day, right? Fasting is when you reduce the quantity of food you eat. On every Friday, we Catholics are required to abstain from meat, we're not required to fast. During the season of um, Easter, we ought not to fast. We still have to abstain from meat. Make sense? Did I answer your question? Part two. You know what? At one point I thought the same thing and we checked, we looked into it. And here, I, here I'm going to have a word of caution I'm not certain, I am not certain if this is universal or if this is just for the Maronite rite. So, but I, I can tell you that in the Maronite rite, you are required to, and also the Latin, right? Because we checked it both ways. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we'll get to the Latin in a minute, therefore. In the Maronite rite, in the Maronite, you have to abstain from meat on, on Fridays, period, all the way through. Abstain from meat, all year round, every Friday. You abstain from meat. For the Maronites, you abstain, except if it falls on a feast day. Yes, solemnities. But I don't know how many of those we have in the Maronite rite that falls on Friday. I don't remember. Maybe, 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 uh, no, Christmas, maybe. St. Joseph, maybe. So, high important feast, maybe then. But you know what? Even during, it's, during those high feasts, it's not that you cannot do it. You have the option not to. Right? So, I keep it simple. I like simple rules. Anyways. That's for the Maronites. Now, the Chaldeans, I think, fall, no? During Easter. You can, even on Friday. Yes. Okay, so for the Chaldeans, you can. So, depends, see, depends on what rite you're targeting. The Latin rite, it is, um, you're supposed to abstain from meat on Friday? Yes. Very good question. Very good question. The question is, how can we... In light of being thankful, how can we explain what happened in Oklahoma? How can we provide an answer to this when, for such a tragedy and when innocent lives have been taken? Right? That's your question. Okay. So here's how we have to deal with it. First, there is our human understanding of things, which by and large is always wrong. Let's look at the words we use. Tragedy. Start right there. Let's think about it. What is a tragedy? Okay. In the Greek definition, if you go back to the Greeks, a tragedy was 
a good action that led to an evil consequence. So, for instance, in the play, um, in the play uh, where, uh, I think, which one is that now? The one where uh, um, Brutus killed his daddy. Caesar, Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar, uh, Brutus, his son, adopted son, and a bunch of other guys decide to kill uh, Julius Caesar to uh, protect uh, democracy. So they are thinking of doing something that will yield a good. Instead, it yields straight into tyranny. So therefore, it's considered to be tragedy. That's our understanding, human understanding. In a divine sense, what is a tragedy? If you look at it from God's perspective, that's it. Somebody going to hell. That's it. Going to hell. Right? Okay. Now you start looking at it this way. Somebody going to hell. That's what we would consider a tragedy. Right? Okay. That's a real thing. The end result. Going to hell. Okay. Now, take it one step back. Everybody dies. Yes? Everybody dies. Okay. Now, innocent lives. Let's think about that one. Who is innocent? Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Nobody else is. You're with me so far? Okay. Hence, there are those who ask why bad things happen to good people. Right? And the Catholic answer is, number one, nobody's good. Now that's straight from Scripture. The rich man coming to Jesus and saying, good teacher. And Jesus turns around and says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. No, none of us can say we're good. Because if we're good, we're spotless. We're, the, we're like the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's good. None of us is good. All of us are born in original sin. All of us have been saved. Well, those who are baptized are saved from original sin. And now we have to contend with all our vices. None of us is good. If we're good, we don't have to go to confession. We're good. Nobody's good. That's number one. Number two, nothing, nothing bad ever happens. Let's think about that. That's also confusing, isn't it? You see, let's say I'm walking down the street and I break my leg. Let's make it more interesting. I was going to the church to get married. And I broke my leg. Is that a bad thing? From my perspective, I say it's a bad thing, right? Why? Because what is the center of this argument? It's me. It's based on what I, with my limited understanding, considers to be good or bad. Let's remember, what is good? Only God is good. What is the good thing that happens to me? The good thing that happens to me is if I go to heaven. That's the real good. Yes? Okay. Therefore... Nothing bad ever happens because everything that happens is for the greater glory of God. Now that's hard for us to accept because we become so self-centered. It's about me. Me and mini-me. We're the two who need to be satisfied. And if we're not satisfied, it ain't good. God doesn't work this way. You're with me so far? Okay. Now, Let me show it to you this way. Let's assume for a second, just for a second, that out of these 21 kids who died, hmm, or 22, or whatever number it is, hmm, 
Let's assume that God was able to open a window and show us the future where they did not die and they ended up in hell versus dying now and ending up in heaven. Is that a tragedy? Would you be sad or would you rejoice that they died? Bingo. You see, at the end of the day, our approach, again, is one of suspicion. We suspect God. And we trust in ourselves. Hence, we tend to think about it in those terms. Right? In those terms. It's a tragedy because we don't like it. Do you see my point? Okay. So, again, the way we have to think about any of these situations, and all of them, whenever an evil is committed, and in this case, I don't think anyone would debate that that was an evil that was committed. It's an evil act that was committed against these people. The thing that we have to constantly remind ourselves of is to, number one, never ever look at an event and separate it from God. Never look at an event as if God was not there. By which I mean that even in these situations, God is present, God offers consolation, help and support, and everything will turn good for those who love Him. So, here's one example I can give you to support what I'm saying. Now I'm going to mungle her name, but I'm going to ask my wife to say her name. Saint ba. The, 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 the slave. Bakita? Bakita? Bakita. Josephine Bakita. Fits that description. Because Saint Josephine Bakita was, she's, a, she's, a, she's a, from Africa. She's, she, well, she still is. I mean, Jesus is still a Jew. She's, she, well, okay. she, I like to say she is, because that reminds us saints are alive, right? She's from Africa. She became a slave. She was abused. And eventually espoused the religion of the abusers. Well, she was abused by colonial powers. And eventually she espoused their religion and became a saint. That door is always open. In all cases, in all circumstances. No one is ever alone. God is always with us. In all cases. You understand? Never ever allow yourself to say, well, what was God? God was right there. Okay? Yes. Ah, how is there any good that comes from souls going to hell? All right, very good question. How is there any good from souls going to hell? Right? So somebody said there isn't, right? That's not the case, actually. That is not the case. Because obviously, some of us might say, well, all right, Lord, a million years in hell is enough. Get them out. Right? This is our limited understanding. I mean, it's enough. Just get them out. Or, okay, why do you keep them alive? Just forget about them. Let them go. Disappear. In the twilight. Right? That's how we think. What good could it come? Ah, good for who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God wants everyone in heaven. But even the souls in hell magnify his justice. Yes. Again, I'll put that case back before you. 
Think about it. You make it to heaven, Stephen. You had 12 kids when you were here. You made it to heaven. After 300 years, none of the kids show up. They're all in hell. You're in heaven. You're in heaven. No, no, no. I'm coming to my question. How are you happy? Aren't you supposed to be perfectly happy in heaven? Okay. Your kids are in hell forever. Are you happy? Okay. How would you be happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But wait, wait, wait. There is an element that is so important, but it's justice that we miss. No, no. His justice is beautiful. God's justice will fill you with ecstasy. It's not like our sense of justice. Once you see things in, in, in God's justice, you will rejoice beyond belief. How do we know that? Job. Read the book of Job. Through the book, Job had his kids taken away from him. His um, wealth taken away from him. His health taken away from him. And he had his nagging wife standing by him. God didn't take her away. Now, I didn't mean it this way. I meant it because of the strength of marriage. That's what's important to God. But, be it as it may, he sent him three friends to tell him, Job, it's impossible that you're innocent. You must have done something wrong to, to merit all of this. God must have, can't punish you just like that. You did something wrong. And Job, and, and Job continuously defended his innocence and was arguing. Then God comes down and talks to him. And in the end of this, what does Job says? Before I did not know you. Now that I know you, I am silent. Nothing to say. Yeah. Silent. I have nothing to say. He beheld God's justice. And it's beautiful. Right? That's what you have to remember. But you have to meditate on this. You have to get to know God. To be able to be at peace with that. Yeah. How would you be happy in heaven if all your kids are in hell? Meditate on that. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.